Hello and welcome to the Wild Truth Chase podcast. My name is Nicholas Schaefer. I'm here with my co-host Neeraj Shah. Neeraj, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Nicholas. How about you? I'm doing well. Um, is there any updates we want to give to the audience uh, since the last episode? Yeah, there are, there have been some developments in the Wild Truth Chase uh, world. Um, we now have a website, um, wildtruthchase.com. So uh, happy for any visitors there. That's mainly that's going to be for our episodes, and then all, there'll also be some uh, blog articles on there too. Uh, and yeah, maybe and that, we'll. Oh, go on, Nicholas. That page links out to our Twitter, Discord, and Reddit in case people are looking for other ways to get involved. That's right. Yeah, and maybe we'll expand things in the future. But just to start off with, it's uh, episodes and blog articles. Excellent. So we are currently. In season two, episode three, season two is all about the news and our habits around reading the news. And uh, episode three is going to be kind of another take on the news. Just to recap where we are, uh, we introduced the season in episode one. And then in episode two, we did a kind of high level overview of many different news sources and covered, sort of talked about what they were discussing in terms of what's going on in the world right now to give ourselves uh, exposure to the news. And one of our longtime listeners um, has uh, is going to join the conversation today, uh, someone who's been on the podcast before. That is my brother, Ned Schaefer. Ned, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're glad to have you here. And so um, this episode title, season two, episode three, is titled News as Propaganda. And I think that uh, what we're going to talk about here is kind of, from your point of view, what's been missing overall in terms of the way we've been thinking about the news uh, so far, at least some of the things. What are the kinds of things uh, that caught your eye or ear in the first two episodes that you know we're kind of missing from our analyses? Well, I, th- I think you guys both come at media and the news from like a pretty like rational place you know you 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 like view news as how to stay informed and make better decisions uh for you know political outcomes or you know uh how how to shape how you view the world um and i i'm that's that's perfectly rational but i guess the way that i come at this topic is that uh the people that are giving you these insights are not coming from a place where they're trying to genuinely inform you. They're trying to shape your opinions in a certain way uh, on certain topics um, to, to kind of make you more compliant uh, to their, to their views. Um, So that's kind of how I, I come at it. I mean, just, you know, for full disclosure, I was a political science major in college and obviously somebody that uh, went to college in the kind of post 9-11 era uh, with a, you know, kind of a leftist tilt. I read a lot of Chomsky and uh, I put uh, you know, YouTube, a short YouTube clip from Chomsky in the episode notes 
that basically it lays out his position that the news is propaganda or, you know, the vast majority of, of mainstream news is propaganda. So that's kind of the jumping off point for me. Yeah. Excellent. I, I did watch that clip and, and, and by the way, Ned, this is my first time uh, sharing a, pod, a podcast episode with you. So I'm really glad that, uh, well, we could both be here today. Yeah, it's um, terrific. Um, I, so I did watch the video and I, so I, I, there was a couple of things that stood out there. So I think a lot of the um, sort of lack of faith or trust in the mainstream media nowadays is people recognizing that they are big corporates and they do have agendas. Um, but like for, in your mind, when you say propaganda, what do you mean there? Do you mean in terms of like on a, on a national level or do you mean as a corporate, they're trying to manipulate you in some way to get so I, you? I, I want to give Ned a chance to answer that question, but maybe for the audience you know, who has not yet watched the clip, uh, we can just, you know, Ned sort of covered it already, but we can be more explicit about what's in the clip. Um, I can try to summarize it and then you guys can correct me where I forget things or get it wrong. So uh, it's Chomsky in conversation with a British journalist named Andrew Marr. And I don't know, it looks, the clip looks like it's maybe, I don't know, Chomsky is totally ageless, so it's hard to tell. <laughs> oh, but, he looks he looks way older now if you see pictures of him recently. Uh, well, so. okay, but uh, I don't know. I'm going to guess it was like 15, 20 years ago. At this least, clip. yep, probably. Um, that's a good guess. Yeah. And uh, it's a short clip, as Ned mentioned, and basically it's... Um, a journalist interviewing Chomsky and Chomsky explaining to the journalist that um, at least what it sounded like to me is like um, the journalist is serving some kind of purpose that he's not even totally aware of, which is to, um, you know, not report what's going on, but instead to sort of limit the way that people think. And the journalist pushes back a little bit and says, you know, kind of like, He's clearly bristling a little bit and says, you know, do you really think that's what I'm doing? And Chomsky said, oh, it's not that you mean to do that. It's, you know, you're doing it because you were raised that way since kindergarten. And, you know, the journalist doesn't like that as an answer. And they go back and forth a little bit about, like that. And, and it's just Chomsky kind of laying out this theory that even if the journalists themselves are not aware of it, they're serving a, a role, which is to kind of keep people in line and keep ideas in line. And that if they were, if that journalist was going to be somebody who was going to push those boundaries, uh, he wouldn't even be in the place that he's in. So it's sort of like a, you know, it's a fait accompli, so, so to speak. Like it's just, you know, it's there's no way around it. Um, so that that was kind of my take on the the video. So Ned, can you talk a little bit about either the video or Neeraj's question about like what what type of propaganda is the, the news putting out? Well, I, I think it's you can expand on Chomsky's idea that you won't, you know, journalists won't be in their position to, uh, you know, report on the news or uh, shape ideas if they didn't have, a, you know, a certain set of values. You know, uh, a lot of people think like, I, I it, it's really hard to get to a position uh, in, to, to get a media position uh, period. Right. And if you don't have certain ideas, uh, it makes it, you're just not going to be put in those positions. So like, I, I look at it as like, 
uh, guardrails on on a discourse? Like, what questions are you even allowed to ask as a journalist? And I think this this hasn't always been the case. You know that uh, previously, or uh, you know, for a long time, journalists were allowed to uh, kind of go and follow them, follow their own path, and figure out uh, you know what's going on in the world. But that that just doesn't seem to be the case. So, like, I think it's just more you're putting guardrails on what questions can be asked and what topics can be approached. So I think another way to restate Neeraj's question is like, what then are the nature of those questions that the, you know, the, the corporations that are running the news are most interested in, in putting the guardrails on? Is it questions of national politics, questions of, uh, I don't know, social politics or, uh, economy or what, what are the kind of the questions where the guardrails are being put up? Yeah. I, th- I think like most journalists come from a certain social and, and economic class. Um, and this is what is kind of a, a lot of class politics have been, or a lot of, uh, class elements have been stripped out of politics. Um, so, you know, you have a certain subset of people typically from, like wealthier backgrounds uh, that even get into journalism school. You know, when you think about people when they're picking a major for college or whatever, uh, you know, if you're from a lower class or a lower social class or economic class, uh, you know, you go to school to make money, right? You like to find a career. Um, Journalism is like not you're not going to get rich typically as a journalist, you know, there, there are like the talking head TV commentators, um, that, you know, obviously make a lot of money, but, uh, it's not, you have to be in a privileged position to even like think about this as a career path in a lot of cases. So, you know, when you come from those backgrounds, you kind of have a preset, uh, idea about things, and kind of like you're you're pre-wired almost to like uh, protect your own class interests. So I think it's not like oh these corporations that own news stations are are saying you can't report on this or you can't report on that. It, it's a lot. I think what Chomsky's saying is uh, you're kind of pre-wired to protect your own class interests, and so if you only draw from one certain social or economic class. Uh, that's going to be the result is people interested in those ideas or, or topics. So I, I, I can see some of that, but then, you know, um, as I think about it, so these newspapers or, or media companies, they do have a financial imperative too. So like there has to be a lot of stuff that lines up there, which is to say that the, the, um, what the journalists have, have been schooled in. And it sounds like this, the supposition is that they get conditioned into thinking a certain way um, through their upbringing. That somehow works with the with the general financial imperative of a media company to to make money. And I'm not sure that it because I was watching this and and we'll link the uh, we'll link the video as well in the um, in the description. But yeah, I wasn't sh- I didn't feel completely. I think there were some good points in there, but I didn't. I wasn't completely sold on the idea 
of that um, all journalists are somehow conditioned in a way that also makes them work with the financial imperatives of a whole different bunch of media sources, which are all trying to make money. Uh, my my feeling is more that the um, the the media companies apply some of the guardrails themselves too. Oh yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, and, and it is you know the thing is this is a long project you know, um, kind of shaping opinion is not going to happen overnight, right? And so it's you know. This has been happening for a, a long time. And, um, you know, I think we can go through some different examples uh, down the outline where I think you will, like, kind of start to uh, understand more what I'm talking about. I, I didn't do a good job of summarizing uh, that to start. Yeah, I think we can uh, we can jump into some of these further examples. One last thing I wanted to touch on here is um, I think that you know, I really like these sort of very specific theories about, you know, what's going on with the, the media. And I just thought, like, what what would an alternate explanation to Chomsky's explanation be? And what would be the evidence that would either, you know, give credit to or invalidate his, uh, his hypothesis or some other hypothesis? And it's, it's pretty hard to come up with anything. Um, and like you can kind of hear that frustration in the in the journalist's voice, because um, basically Chomsky's giving him no way out. Basically, nothing that the guy can do to like introspect about what he's doing and the job he's trying to do. There's no room for that in uh, explaining his own behavior. It's sort of like all kind of cast as this thing that's uh, you know started way before he was born and is going to continue until he's dead and long after he's dead and uh, you know there's no room for an explanation from the point of view of the, the journalists themselves. And I, you know, whether or not Chomsky's right, I can definitely uh, see why that would be frustrating from the point of view of the journalist. It's a, it's a strong rhetorical device, if that's even the correct phrase, right? It's like, it's a, it's putting him in a bag to start. Right. And he's not getting out of that. You know, yeah. it, it does kind of, he gives the journalist no credit for thinking for himself, right? So it, whatever it's, it's not possible in that framework for him it, to yeah. think for himself. Exactly, whatever he may say, it's it's not a it's not a um and it's not an independent thought. It's a thought that has been programmed into him, which I would imagine is incredibly frustrating from the journalist's point of view. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's probably well educated. Probably, you know, went to four years of university, got a master's degree. You know, uh, worked. D toiled away in some newsroom somewhere and worked his way up to uh, get a TV gig. And then he just gets body bagged by this old man, <laughs> you know, so it's got to be uh, enough. The, uh, some of the other examples um, that you were giving here, Ned, um, it sort of gets into the, the question of whether or not um, news can be truly unbiased and what are the virtues of trying to be unbiased and whether or not that's possible and you brought up the, you know, the example of newspapers. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So like back in the day, uh, newspapers were controlled by parties. So like, you know, uh, in, in Niraj's case, he's in the UK. There used to be a Tory newspaper and a, a labor newspaper, you know, in the, and you knew what you were getting when you bought 
you know, whatever paper you wanted. And they would uh, cover basically the same issues, but they would kind of show their, uh, you know, just give their uh, spin on the news. And it, it was like everybody kind of understood what the game was. Um, you know, now I think the pro one of the problems is, and I, I get like the temptation to be quote unquote unbiased and shoot down the middle and, and that sort of thing. Um, but in reality, you bring your own point of view to whatever, uh, news story, uh, you're working on. And so like in my point of view, I think it's just better to like, uh, put out what your, uh, you know, just kind of explain what your bias is. Everybody understands. Um, and then also like bias isn't just always political, right? Uh, you know, if, if you have, there were also, you know, there still are kind of like socialist newspapers, right? Um, but like, there are no like left-wing perspectives or very few, uh, left-wing perspectives, like challenging kind of capitalist dogma, um, in newspapers typically. Uh, so like if you just come to an issue and say, this is how, uh, this is my point of view, this is the issue, this is how I see it. Um, it's yes, it's news cause I'm, I'm reporting on an issue that's going on, but this is my perspective on it. Uh, I think that's like a more fair way of portraying things. Does that make sense? I think that definitely does make sense. Uh, our, our newspapers here are still, I would say many of them are broadly aligned with their party. So the guardian is very much aligned with labor. The telegraph is very much uh, aligned with the conservatives. Um, on, on the question of bias, I do wonder sometimes like how how accurate self-reporting of bias is and whether there's room for unconscious bias. Because, you know, I would, if someone was to ask me to to write a, some on a topic and I'd be like, okay, yeah, I, I'll try and give an unbiased view <laughs> of that topic. But I'm pretty sure, and I, I just think it's impossible, right, to really be unbiased. You, you must come with some baggage that's going to inform how you might approach a topic. Um, and I may not be even be aware of it. Is that something? Yeah. Um, and even like what topics you want to talk about, you know, mm. and it's, I mean, you're a human being, right? You, you are uh, informed by your previous opinions and your life experiences and all that. So I think it's just fair, you know, it's just a more uh, open and transparent, uh, you know, way to do things is just say, this is where I'm coming from. Or, you know, know that, okay, this is, uh, you know, a right-wing perspective or a left-wing perspective or a pro-corporate or, you know, an anti-capitalist perspective. You know, it's just, you know what you're getting into uh, when you're going into it. Are there any examples in the U.S. you can think of that, that do actually self-report their bias? Um, well, I mean, it's pretty clear, like in uh, cable news, there is like an obvious there are like, you know, basically two media companies that are mouthpieces for the two major parties. You know, I mean, Fox News is the mouthpiece for uh, the Republican Party, obviously. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of clownish. And then on the Democratic <laughs> side, you have like kind of 
uh, like equally clownish uh, MSNBC, right? Um, and CNN uh, and a couple others like try to kind of straddle the middle. NPR is one that tries to like straddle the middle uh, and, and, you know, kind of report on things. But ultimately, I think that's one of the problems is a lot of these outlets still use sources that are, uh, we're going to get to it later, but like uh, if you read a story on NPR about uh, a national security mat- matter, they will quote, uh, you know, national security sources, you know, government sources on national security, um, which, you know, people think like, oh, that's, uh, that's going to be unbiased. But obviously, the United States government uh, has their own perspective on things like the Pentagon is putting out talking points, you know, it's it is PR um, on, on different issues, for example. One, uh, particular issue here um, that we know, I know we wanted to touch on was uh, kind of local news and crime reporting specifically. Yeah. Um, And so perhaps that can be an example of how like the discussion gets framed and what's, you know, people are allowed to say and not allowed to say, um, even if they're unaware of those limitations themselves. Um, How do you see, uh, local news and specifically crime reporting as being problematic. Yeah. So it's funny. Um, they're the first, so, so local news used to be like really dry and there's a great documentary on this, uh, that like the first kind of colorful local news guy, um, that would report on crime was actually from Houston, Nick. I don't, I, I need to look up his name and, and uh, you know, and I'll send it to you, but this guy would like kind of sensationalize and go out and report on crime in the field and like stick a microphone in, in the face of people. Uh, and it generated huge, huge ratings. And so like, you know, the, uh, everybody's heard the phrase, like, if it bleeds, it leads, you know? And so, uh, you know, we live in an era where violent crime and crime in general is like at almost historic lows. There's like been a slight uptick in the last couple of years, uh, due to different reasons. And those are still under debate probably. Um, but you know, we just, if you go to any, local news, uh, watch any local news broadcast, uh, in any American city, it's just going to be like the weather sports. And then, you know, somebody shot some guy first for no reason. And it just really, and it, it's like meant to scare people. It really does scare people. And it changes it. This, this has been like a 30, 40 year process of really just scaring people into thinking that there's way more crime currently than there is. Um, so that, that's like how I see a lot of local crime, uh, reporting. And I, I did send a link, like just comparing and contrasting. And I, there are better charts, uh, out there that show this, but like people's perceptions of the amount of crime is just way out of whack from reality. And I think a lot of that has to do with with local news and crime reporting. 
So I I was interested in the the link you sent because um, the the content itself was interesting, but also the fact that you're you're citing a source is is interesting to me. Um, and I wonder, like, what is it about in this case Pew Research that um, you know makes you willing to sort of cite them as a source and uh, you know, what kind of biases do you think they are, um, you know, bringing to the table and why is it safe to sort of, uh, trust them for your information in, in this particular case? I mean, I think that they're just, a, uh, you know, I'm sure that they have their own biases, right? Like I'm not saying that they're unbiased. Um, they had a nice, uh, you know, graph you know that's why i use this source i mean it's just like kind of visually easy to see like okay here's the crime rate going down here's the perception of crime going up and this is not like uh something that they have just found there's there have been lots of different studies on this um so i don't know why i picked pew but i I think it's basically they, they had nice graphs so so just as a, a point of interest, I, I've never been in any other country which actually televises police chases. The only place <laughs> I've seen that happen is is the US. And it, and yeah. sometimes it was almost like primetime viewing, right? You could, you could watch there. I remember being at work and sometimes there's, there was a TV in, in this sort of, um, in the eating area. And sometimes you'd have a police chase on and be uh, three or four people watching what was happening. And I guess that's a, an example. And you know, I, I do wonder how much of this is sort of driven by, um, you know, it, it must have a, a detrimental effect on people's mindsets just to continually get that sort of information. Um, and But it, then again, I wonder how much it is just driven by financial, uh, yeah, this gets viewers, if, if it bleeds, it leads. And this is really maybe one of those scenarios where the public doesn't win very much, but the, the media companies might do. Yes, that's, uh, I think you're spot on there. Like if you see a live, uh, high speed chase in your city, I mean, how can you look away from that? You know, (laughs) it's just like, uh, it, it, it really like, there's probably not a whole lot going on during the day there. Uh, and so some guy hops in a car that's not his and decides to, uh, you know, drive, drive away with it. And, you know, it's dangerous. You could catch maybe, uh, you know, some sort of accident on TV or something. Um, so like I, I get, I understand the motivation. I just think it's just not helpful to inform people like what actually happens. I did also see you, um, write something in, in the episode notes that sounded like the title of a movie copaganda. What, what is that exactly? So copaganda is like if we're talking about like, you know, national security sources for like, uh, you know, if you're talking about foreign conflicts, copaganda is the idea that police uh, departments have their own public relations departments. And, you know, these journalists that work at local news stations you know, they're probably overworked, they're on deadline, they're looking for a story. So they go to the police whenever they need, you know, a story. And so like, okay, what happened in this crime? 
you're not going to go and find the person's defense attorney or something like that. Uh, or like, uh, you know, somebody in the community that might know what happened. It's just easy to call up your contact in the police department. So that's part of it. And then also, um, copaganda is also, you know, you go back to the summer of 2020 post George Floyd, uh, you know, police, it's just obvious that, that, uh, there's a lot of police that are just out of control in, um, you know, in just doing violent things against citizens they're supposed to protect. So in response, you'll see police departments putting out, uh, videos of, of handing out candy to kids or, you know, uh, Dancing. we're the little league coaches now, or, you know, doing TikTok videos, dancing with kids, you know, it's, this is all part that that's all kind of wrapped up in, in propaganda. Um, so it's just, you know, propaganda for, for local police departments. Actually. So something just occurred to me, which I didn't think of previously, but, uh, here sort of, you know, back to back in the conversation, you've mentioned, uh, two things and come to sort of opposite conclusions, at least seemingly, one is, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, showing crime on TV and uh, how it sort of overrepresents the amount of crime that's being shown. And then you cited the case of George Floyd and, you know, came to the conclusion that there's a lot more of that kind of, you know, police led violence happening. Can you say a little bit about what makes you think the uh, different things about these two different types of cases? Well, there. Okay. So before the advent of, uh, everybody having a phone in their hand and a camera in their hand, uh, at all times, um, you know, if police pulled somebody over and, you know, perpetrated violence against that person wrongly, they would always, it would always come down to a kind of, he said, he said, or she said, uh, sort of scenario. And the, the obvious like conclusion that most people previously would come to, uh, that, you know, aren't in over police communities would be that, oh, you know, the, they, the police are correct because we have, uh, given them the power to kind of, you know, obviously police society, uh, and the person that got pulled over is obviously a criminal. And so they must be lying. But, you know, with the advent of like uh, cell phone cameras, uh, we can see that that's just not the case anymore. Like there are more and more instances caught on camera. And it's not like the police weren't brutalizing people before cell phone cameras. This is, you know, it's been going on for a long time, but now we just have visual evidence. And so it makes it like very real. And so when you have local news, like obviously local news are going to, they're going to put these sorts of things on because they have to, I mean, they're, they're kind of forced to now. Um, whereas previously they, they would have never done that. Don't you think it would have, I mean, if they had the video available to them, it always would have been in their financial interest to, to play something like that. Sure. It, yeah. But you also have to go back to the, the point that they get the, the primary source for their information is typically the police and you don't want to burn your source as a journalist, you know, 
there have been lots of documented instances of uh, police, uh, you know, saying we're not going to talk to this station or that station because they portray us in a poor light. I mean, this is like uh, this is part of what they do is like they're, they're trying to save face and they will, uh, you know, kind of pressure these outlets um, in different ways. I, I, I so put are, are those examples of of stations stepping out of Chomsky's body bag? Uh, what do you mean? Like, they're, well, they're... if they got in trouble with the police about you know you know saying the wrong things about the yeah. Police. Well, I mean, okay, there's a, a an example down the timeline or that down the little uh, outline that I put together um, later, and it there was a great there's a great expose on the Los Angeles County Sheriff Department. Uh, they basically are a criminal gang or a a series of criminal gangs. And there's uh, a, like a 20 part series and it's written uh, on kind of this independent outlet that this lady in Los Angeles put together, basically documenting all the crimes of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's department. And this coverage, she's been working on it for years and she shopped it to everybody, all of the major news sources in uh, in Los Angeles, and nobody wanted to pick it up, and that's why it it you know found its way to just a small independent news site, you know, and then it finally got traction, and it finally started to get uh, you know some run in larger publications uh, because like the L.A. Times, they didn't want to run it, you know, because they have lots of uh, you know police news sources and they, they have to go to police for comment. And so if they couldn't get comments from the police on, on anything, you know, good luck writing stories, you know? So if you put it, if you put, I would put that in the show notes, the uh, link to that expose, cause that's a tremendous series of articles. Any, anything we discuss here, anything we managed to get to, we're going to try to include in the episode description. Terrific. I just had a, a question from like personal experiences that when I was living in the US, I did have a fear of ever having to deal with the cops. Um, and I don't know what that was sort of uh, caused by. I, I just knew that I definitely did not did not want any sort of because they seem to have a, a tremendous amount of power to do essentially whatever they want. And I, I wonder where that impression came from because um, well, I, I, I don't get the impression. Oh, go ahead. Go on, Sorry. Then. Well, oh. I think part of it is how the how they're dressed and how they carry themselves. Um, there is there's a guy that is paid by local police departments um, to teach what's called the warrior mindset to to local police departments, and this is not like serve and protect, right? Every cop car you see in America has like serve and protect on the side which is just kind of hilarious because then they hop out and they're, you know, in bulletproof vests armed to the teeth. Uh, they have SWAT vehicles that have been, uh, passed down from, uh, the federal, uh, military, uh, you know, through a program that, you know, basically, you know, gives excess military equipment to local police departments. So it's just like their mission has completely changed. 
And so this guy has trained all of these different police departments on the, the warrior mindset. And he, he even cites the example of uh, kind of as an occupying force in, in uh, you, you know, you're going into enemy territory, so to speak. He, this is the rhetoric he uses to train the police. Um, so it's just like, that's probably part of why you were nervous. Like you, you've probably seen some, some news clips or whatever. Uh, but then you like see these people out there and they're armed to the teeth, you know, and they're not like the bobbies in London, you know, where it's like, they don't even carry guns, you know? And that's just like, and they're, they're just there to like answer your questions. And, you know, if, if, if somebody's had too much to drink, maybe take them to the drunk tank, you know, that sort of thing. I I mean, I, I'm enjoying the conversation a lot. I think we do have to move it along a little bit. Unfortunately, we yeah. may have to skip over entirely this story about um, police getting very ill from being in the room with fentanyl. Yeah, that, you guys, you would get a kick out of that as a scientist real quick. Um, it, it's uh, police seem to be the only type of people that can absorb fentanyl through their skin, despite all scientific knowledge. Uh so yeah, that's, that's kind of fun. Uh, All right. Well, we'll include it in the episode description in case people want to explore it. Um, yeah. But I wanted to take us a little bit from the local to the national now and talk about um, cable news and what's the purpose of cable news and uh, you know, what, what are the real motivations that underlie it? Um, what, what's your basic understanding of that, Ned? Yeah. I mean, we kind of covered cable news. It's, Despite, you know, and I guess, I guess I put in, uh, I kind of described it as like being the mouthpiece of the two parties, but it is also just like supposed to be entertainment. I mean, nobody may, well, I hope nobody turns on cable news and sees it as like actually enter, you know, actually informing them of any real issue. It's just like, it's a way to keep eyes. I mean, it, it's on all the time. Like there, there is no, uh, they make change the host, uh, on these individual channels, but they run with the same stories all the time. They're usually not stories that affect, uh, people's lives very much. Um, and they're also just kind of pushing one talking point or another, of like a political party. And and it it really is just kind of like sports, you know, like, okay, I go to my uh, cable news channel to see what my, uh, what my team is supposed to be saying uh, so that I can go out there and, you know, argue online for my point of view. (laughs) Uh, That's the way I see cable news. It's just kind of, you know, clownish. Yeah, I think I think actually, I mean, in the spectrum of things we're talking about today, that's probably the most universally agreed upon point. I don't know if Neeraj has anything else to add to that. Well, I did have a question, and it's one I've been pondering a little bit recently: is whether we we get the sort of, and I think cable news falls into this, is whether we we get the news we deserve. Um, hmm. You know, whether consumer habits are actually what's driving such, yeah, uh, such. Um, I would say comedic news news outlets comedic in a bad way not haha funny but just sort of oh that's a bit depressing but the you know as i as i was watching recently there was um a 
the, the Tory leadership, there's the Tory leadership contest where they were trying to elect a new leader of the Tory party. Yeah. And, and it's just all nonsense, really. It's, uh, they're all looking for the moment where someone makes a gaffe or where someone says something and gets lots of claps, but they're all m- missing like the main components of the arguments these people are making. They, they were actually very different arguments that, that these people were making. And I, I was just watching the news and thinking, is this just because of consumers? Is this what we what we're asking for and is this what we're getting i I think that's partially true you know um i like to think you know i like to have optimism for like humanity right and people in general but there there is just like this kind of sick obsession of like owning the other side right and the same thing happens in the u.s absolutely you know like during the Trump administration, it was MSNBC all day, every day. Oh, here, here's Trump. Here's something stupid he said, or a miss, uh, you know, a kind of a misstep, or he has got toilet paper on his shoe, or whatever. He, you know, can't walk down a ramp. You know, that was like a serious thing. Like, oh, Trump can't walk down a ramp. You know, or he's scared of of stairs or something. Uh, and now, and now it's just Biden. And you know. We have like back to back presidents in the U.S. that just like, I mean, it's just terrible quote after terrible quote, and they can't like string sentences together consistently. Um, and so now it's, you know, Fox News gets their turn at like, oh, here's all the stupid things Joe Biden said and, you know, all of his gaffes. And so it's just like competing gaffes. Uh, and then, you know, the other side will try to explain it away. Um, or like even better, it's like the fact checkers, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, so somebody said something stupid. Uh, now we got to fact check it, you know, and um, so I think you're correct. Like we this is just what people want now. And I think it comes from a like kind of a powerless place, honestly, like. Uh, you know, people don't really have any leverage on their, um, political outcomes anymore, or like what they, they don't really see much hope in like changing anything. So they're just going to like, Oh, I'm just going to bang on the other side and make fun of them. If they, uh, you know, if they, if they make a mistake, because I'm not, I can't change anything. Right. Um, even if I vote for a Democrat and they happen to win, uh, they're probably not going to implement the policies that I want to see, uh, you know, and even worse, if they lose, then the other side is, is definitely not going to implement the policies I'm going to see, uh, I want to see. And so I can just make fun of them, you know? So, um, from the, the local to the national, I want to take us to the international. Um, and it occurs to me that, um, the, the international is maybe a little bit harder for people psychologically. And I was thinking about why that is. And in the local news, you know, most of the local news that people make fun of as being absurd is not actually in your locality because most, you don't live in most places, right? It's mostly the Florida man does da 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 da, right? And some <laughs> stupid thing. Um, and so it's easy to make fun of the local news and, and likewise with the cable news, right? Because you're in some sense, you know, seemingly you're free to choose a side and then you can mock the other side with, with 
national, you know, international news, um, you, first of all, you can't choose the country you're born in. And there are, you know, pretty tough limitations for most people in terms of where they live in the world. So I think that like the idea that, you know, an entire country, you know, might be ridiculous in this way is kind of harder for, for people to understand. But I think that, you know, in reading through your notes, that's basically uh, the argument you're making that we're not that different than the people we make fun of on the world stage. Is that, is that how you see it, Ned? Uh, Kind of. Yeah. Yes. Um, So with covering international uh, events, this is where the uh, like the news can kind of um, calcify uh, into like one single talking point, you know, Um, and this is where the guardrails really come up is like when when American news outlets are uh, reporting on international affairs, because ultimately we have two parties in the United States that have similar uh, goals in forwarding the imperial mission. Uh, And so like the U.S., uh, they don't like to say it, but they uh, obviously are an empire. They have, uh, you know, kind of uniform economic interests, regardless of party. Um, and you, you see this, like, especially in the days of like, I mean, the, the easiest one to point to, uh, historically is like the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, right? Like, um, anybody that, anybody outside of the, the beltway kind of bubble knew that this was like pretty tenuous, like, uh, it's probably not the case that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Um, but both parties agreed on this. And so therefore all of the news outlets agreed that this was going to be the talking point. Um, we had to get into Iraq, you know, one way or another, um, to, to push forward, you know, um, it it was like anti-terrorism was the justification, but it was clear that this was like resource extraction. This was going to be a mission for resource extraction and controlling one of the world's greatest resources oil. Um, and so this is where like the rise of the national security sources that we talked about before, like, okay, we're going to believe our sources, uh, you know, in the intelligence community when we ask them, okay, is this true? Like, um, and, you know, obviously support for the invasion of Iraq was huge, you know, by the time that they went in. Um, It it was, it was targeted uh, from both left and right, quote unquote, left and right, uh, you know, news sources that, you know, Iraq had, weapons of mass destruction, we had to do this because um, it was in, in America's interest. That brings, brings me back actually to actually uh, just going full circle to the the, the uh, video we mentioned at the start with Noam Chomsky, where he talks about the reasons for going into Vietnam as just being, okay, there was what we were explaining on um, to the world, but then behind that, there was just a series of decisions that actually we need to take this action. And it was just unrelated to what was what was being explained to the world. Um, and I, I can see a lot of that. I can see, yeah, I mean, you 
I mean, this is true for everybody, I guess, even it doesn't matter if you're a, a country or a person is that there's the external brand and then there's the your internal motivations for doing anything. And you do tend to try and um, massage everything to look good externally. Um, but uh, there was like, I would say that there are some differences that I, uh, in sort of how if you compare, say, the UK or the US to other international news sources is, you know, like a, at least we can criticize our leaders a lot more um, in and even like on an inter, on an international stage, whereas some countries you just can't criticize the leaders in any way at all. I mean, do you, do you see do you see a distinction there? Do you do you see those distinctions there? I, I think really those distinctions are pretty surface level. You know, like yes, we can criticize our leaders, but like, does anything really come of that? You know, we still get uh, the choices, quote unquote between two imperial parties, you know, um, we still get the, uh, you know, the neoconservative, uh, option, which is like, you know, Bush Cheney, we're going to go into Iraq because, you know, America's great and that's what we're going to do. And then like the Obama, like, uh, liberal internationalist branch, um, like that we're going to invade Libya for human rights reasons or whatever. Um, and I think there's a, you know, I wish we had more time to get into it, but like the weaponization of like human rights discourse where, okay, we're going to invade Libya and, and overthrow this like relatively stable North African government um, that we've said in the past has, has been involved in terrorism um, they might have been involved in terrorism, but that was, you know, long ago. Um, and now, you know, we're going to invade them for human rights reasons. And, uh, and, and if you look at Libya now, it's like there's open air slave markets, you know, it's just like, it's crazy. Uh, and so like the, like the rhetoric is different, but like the ends are, are similar, you know, um, there's a lot of people in the U S that probably don't understand that, um, the military, the U S military is occupying a third of Syria currently. Um, and it, you know, in Syria, this is like the only place that ISIS is still, uh, a thing, you know, ISIS has been largely beat back in Iraq. Um, but like it, it still exists in, us occupied syria you know it's like just strange state things like that and so you know you get like liberal internationalist justification for imperial wars you know that that sort of thing that's, so like I, I guess i should say like uh, just to wrap it up like we have a choice right like we can criticize the republicans we can criticize the democrats um but ultimately, from a foreign policy standpoint, it doesn't matter because we're going to get similar policies for each. So I actually, I was in the Middle East during much of the Arab Spring. And I think that's when I started seriously looking at other sources of news rather than just purely Western media, because um, for many of the reasons that you, you mentioned, Ned, I think that I just wanted to see what another perspective uh, was on it, um, because you do you've seen it like there's been occasions in the past where you do feel like these things as like human rights have been weaponized to try and achieve a, another aim, which is, um, 
which had been running in the background all the time. So yeah, so I, I, I do remember at that time, I started trying to, I started reading Al Jazeera a lot more and, and other news sources as well. I think the only thing I have to add, maybe from my personal experience, this conversation is, uh, you know, living with a, a family of, of Chinese people, the degree to which they self-censor, it would be totally foreign to to most Americans. Like they wouldn't even understand why or what's going on. Um, you know, so that, I mean, that's, that's definitely different, uh, whether or not it has any important consequence. I guess that's sort of more to Ned's question. Um, Ned, we've got like 10 more topics here and we've got a few minutes left. I'm going to let you yeah. choose um, how we're going to wrap it up because I don't want to, you know, miss anything that you really wanted to talk about. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff, but like just to kind of keep it uh, tidy uh, and not open a new door. Like I think people don't understand fully the reliance on not only like quote unquote national security sources, but also like the NGO complex and what's also now called open source intelligence, um, kind of the reliance for, uh, th these are just new arms in kind of the, the propaganda war. Um, so like the examples that I give are like, uh, the national endowment for democracy, um, this Which is, we can't not mention because the acronym is is Ned. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's like kind of eerie, right? Uh, so the National Endowment for Democracy, like you hear that, like a normal person would hear that acronym and like, oh yeah, that's great, you know, like oh there, it's an endowment for democracy. But really, like what this, it it it's just a CIA cutout. It like literally is just, uh, you know. CIA funded, um, and they set up all kinds of different, uh, you know, medias in, in foreign countries just to like push, um, like Amer the American point of view on different things. And like one of the most famous is Radio Marti, uh, and this is in South Florida. Uh, obviously during the cold war, we had like radio free Europe, radio Asia, that sort of thing. And we were just piping propaganda into the Soviet Union and the Soviet post, you know, in the Soviet bloc states. Um, but Radio Marti operates out of South Florida uh, to kind of do the same thing to Cuba. Okay. So uh, this is uh, allegedly set up to send news through like the, the blockade of news sources, um, you know, in, into Cuba and what it has kind of, some would say consequentially or inconsequentially done is it's turned like even the people in South Florida, like all of the, a lot of Spanish speaking people in South Florida, like extremely right wing, you know, because they're, uh, all of their talking points are, you know, anti-socialist and, you know, anti-communist and, you know, uh, freedom and, and this and that. Um, and it's turned like, a lot of South Florida, like the Spanish speakers, like kind of just reaction into reactionaries. Um, and so it's almost like it's a domestic operation more than an international operation. 
Um, and you've seen this like kind of transformation over the last couple election cycles. Um, you know, Florida used to be a swing state and it's like not even a swing state now. And so like, even if you're kind of an, a liberal internationalist and you say, you know, I, I do believe in the American mission, uh, abroad, you know, and I think, uh, America is a, you know, a kind of force for good in the world, you do kind of get like blowback, right? Like, uh, where you're, you're just pushing these right wing talking points overseas and it's starting to affect your, your domestic politics in ways you probably don't like, you know? Um, and the, the other thing that I wanted to bring up is like, you know, everybody is a lot of people, if you don't like mainstream news sources, you're probably going to start going towards alternative media, you know? Um, but of course the, the propaganda machine is, is one step ahead of us. Um, so you get, you know, sources like vice news. I, I heard Naraj, uh, mention vice news and I used to like vice news. Um, but they were recently a large, uh, they were got a big infusion of, of money from the, from the Saudis. Um, so you'll notice that like on vice news, which is, you know, kind of geared towards hip young people and like they run a lot of human rights stories and like feel good stories about, um, I wouldn't say feel good stories, but like they, they kind of feel like hard hitting journalists, you know? Um, but you'll notice that they never say anything bad about the Saudis who are like some of the, like, I, I'm not speaking for you guys, but in my perspective, like some of the worst people in the world, like, you know, uh, do not embody any sort of democratic values of any kind. So I noticed that along with Vice News, you had The Intercept there. How is that? How's The Intercept related to that? Yeah. So The Intercept is interesting. Um I'm sure you guys have heard of Reality Winner, who was um, one of these national security leakers. Um, and she's not alone in this. Um, she reached out to The Intercept because, you know, The Intercept at the beginning was, uh, uh, you know, uh, founded by Glenn Greenwald and, and some other folks, Laura Poitras, through the Snowden leaks. You know, they that it came out of the Snowden leaks. And we... I wish we had time to get into Snowden. I got, uh, there's other issues with him anyway. So, but so the intercept was founded by one of the eBay founders and he's a billionaire guy. And it's like, why, why is this billionaire guy so interested, you know, in like bringing down, uh, you know, the empire essentially, you know, the intercept kind of build itself as like this truth, you know, this forbidden truth teller, well, Reality Winner, you know, leaked a, like a single document uh, to to the Intercept, and she was immediately burned uh, by the Intercept and and spent four years in prison. And she's not the only one. The source that has been burned by the Intercept, and some, you know, they say it was like a mistake and this and that. But there are these operate uh, in a lot of people's views. The Intercept is just a catch and kill sort of operation for leakers. Um, 
you know, I'm kind of on the fence on that. I tend to believe that's the truth, like just because of the the evidence. Um, but you know, I would, I don't know. I'm, I'm still a little bit on the fence for that. So like, you know, you think of like catch and kill, that was, uh, the, the other famous example of that is like the national Enquirer. you know, Donald Trump and some other folks, uh, they use the, the national Enquirer to, you know, kind of catch and kill bad stories in the press. And this was just like, you know, tabloid stuff. But I think the intercept, while they do some very good reporting, right? Like, don't get me wrong. There is some very good reporting in there. Um, and I'm sure there are journalists with the intercept that, uh, you know, are, are in it for the right reasons. Um, you know, it, it's just kind of suspicious that like some I, of I the, don't think that, I don't think that Chomsky would agree there. What wouldn't he agree with? That, that they are in it for the right reasons. Um, they're in it for reasons that they have nothing, no control over. No, I, I think, well, you know, the funny thing about Chomsky is you can email him and he will respond. Uh, he okay. responds all, to like all of thousands. our listeners, all of our listeners. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah. Well, you're a big audience. They could all email Chomsky and he would, it might be like three words, uh, but he will respond to your email. It's, it's like kind of funny. Uh, I've never done it. Cause I like, he's, approaching 90 years old and I don't want to harass an old man, you know? Um, Neeraj, uh, well, first of all, Ned, thanks so much for putting all of this material together for us. I've really enjoyed it. Obviously we didn't get through it all, nor did we put any questions to bed, but we opened a lot of doors. Uh, Neeraj, there's anything else you wanted to, to mention before we sign off for today? Uh, I think this episode just made me more confused. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That That's on the path to... Is that, being, oh, is that uh, one of the stages? Okay, that's good. Yeah. That's good to know. Right. Well, I got off to kind of a slow start, so uh, it was my fault, probably. No, this is great. It just means that we're going to have to have you on again, Ned. Oh, no, it's just the it's, long game. <laughs> it, it's just, you know, the variety of news sources and understanding what positions they're taking and all of that. And uh, yeah, I think that's, um, yeah. I think my, my attitude of just ignoring the news is getting better and better as we go deeper into this. <laughs> You know, it, like I kind of went in that circle, right? Like, uh, so I graduated with a political science degree, decided I didn't want to work in politics because I, it, it seems pretty awful. And then I kind of circled back to it, like get back into it, get interested, you know, follow the news every day. And now I'm like kind of wanting to pull away. <laughs> like it makes me want to pull away again. So I think the fact that you never got interested in it was initially the right decision. Um, but you know, that's, that remains to be seen, I guess. Excellent. Well, um, despite that, we will be back next week with another episode on the news. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, please tune in for that. And then, uh, yeah, we'll put some resources in the episode description, probably put another poll and question up, you know, uh, anybody out there listening, please feel free to reach out, tell us what you thought of this episode and all the other episodes. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining, and uh, we'll see you later. Thanks, everyone. Bye.